0: Well, there is no substitute for experience. John Burke has a master's degree in crop and soil science, 10 years as an Ag and Natural Resources agent for Michigan State University and over two decades of farming full time. He's learned a ton about what works and what doesn't work when it comes to building healthier soils on his farm.
1: Get some green manure back in. You've got to replenish them soils. You've got to keep them soils healthy and you need to keep them in one place so they're not all over the neighborhood. But at the same time, I'm going to tell somebody, don't go out tomorrow and this fall and say, I'm going to plant 1,000 acres of rye. You, you're never going to do it again. Do 100 acres of rye. Figure out how you're going to manage that 100 before you do a 1,000. If you're skeptical about the weather and you don't want to try and do rye, do something that winter kills. Do something that's easy. Radishes, peas, spring barley, black oats, white oats, flaxseed that all winter kills and it still helps the soil benefit.
0: Michigan farmer, John Burke, shares a ton of extremely practical and detailed information about finding ways to build healthier soils on the farm. This is the Soil Sense podcast, where we believe that building healthier soils is not just a prescription, but rather a pursuit. On this show, we unpack the ways farmers collaborate to build healthier soils and adapt systems to work on their farm for both sustainability and profitability. Let's get to the root of all that and cover some ground on today's episode of Soil Sense. Hey there, thanks for tuning in to Soil Sense. I'm one of your hosts, Tim Hammerich. Joining me, of course, is co-hosted Dr. Abby Wick, and we're sitting down with Michigan farmer, John Burke. John farms in Bay City, Michigan, which is in the Saginaw Valley, located in the Thumb, as they call it, of Michigan. Before returning to the family farm, John earned a master's degree in crop and soil sciences and worked for Michigan State University for about 10 years as an ag and natural resources agent. Even though he's been farming full time for over 20 years now, he still remains involved in a lot of cover crop work and research with the university, as well as SARE and some conservation districts. This is one of the most practical and information-packed episodes I think we've done. John shares a ton of specifics about things that he's implemented over the years, or at least tried, including some really useful tools and strategies that I think are applicable to a lot of situations. He also brings a unique perspective as someone who grows not only corn and soybeans, but also sugar beets, which we talk quite a bit about, and dry edible beans as well. I asked John if he could kick things off by telling us what prompted him to initially leave the farm and go out and work for the university for a while and what ultimately brought him back to begin this soil health journey
1: back when i was in high school that was the late 80s so everybody you know the farms were not making a lot of money a lot of the farms in our area were going broke having a hard time paying their bills my parents shoved me into going to school instead of just farming So that was actually a very good experience going to the university. I met a lot of the researchers. I worked a lot with them while I was in school. And it wasn't long after I had my bachelor's degree. I was home. I wasn't really working for the university yet out of school. I was still doing some agribusiness-type work. And for some reason, I was bored and decided I needed a master's degree for fun. So I wrote a thesis. And at the same time, I had a job with the university as the extension agent. And I did that for 10 years, and I don't know, one day it just became too much to do. The farm was growing, and you can't do everything at once. So I left the university, came back to the farm, and at the same time, I'm sitting there looking at the soil, and they weren't very productive soils at that time. The sugar beets had took a toll on our ground, so the earthworm activity wasn't there. The organic matter was going down, and the water was ponding in our fields. Our yields were way down from where they should have been. And over the last, I guess it would be 20 years, 23 years, organic matters increased almost 2%. The water don't pond in our fields. Our yields are some of the top yields in the area. Our sugar beets are pushing 30 to 35 ton. You go back 20 years, we could barely get 18 ton. Corn, we're typically in that low 200 range. Soybeans, I've hit 90 and I'm striving for 100. Uh, wheat typically in this area is 90 to 100, 110. That's white wheat. And our dry edible beans are in that 30 bag range. Where you go back 20 years, we could barely get 15 to 18 bags out of a dry edible bean.
0: Wow. And in those 20 years, has the biggest difference been the cover crops? Or you know, how much of that success would you attribute to uh, the soil health building practices that you sort of pursued on your own?
1: I think a lot of it, you know. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, seed genetics. We have Roundup Ready sugar beets now, so we're not spraying them every seven to ten days with herbicides, setting them back. So that that contributes too. But the soil health, I feel, is contributing more. And if you start talking to more people, they'll kind of say the same thing. Uh, especially when you look at soybeans in this area, you know, usually fifty bushel to sixty is a pretty good number. And I can get a lot of 70 bushel plus beans. And we've had 80s numerous times, and we've even had some in the low 90s, where a lot of people have never saw those numbers before for soybeans. And like I say, organic matter, you look at, you know, a 2% increase, you know, that's huge. I mean, that's, what, a couple inches of water per acre is what they claim. You know, and in a dry year, these crops don't suffer that much anymore like they used to. We've got a lot of uh, flat late. Bad, heavy clay soils. So when it rains, it doesn't take a whole lot of water to make that soil really tight. It's not as big a problem as it used to be for the tightness of the soil anymore.
0: And you've kind of alluded to it a couple of times about some of the struggles you were facing 20 plus years ago that led to trying cover crops. But can you just take us back to that time and tell us, what what was it that prompted you to try cover crops in the first place? And what were some of those early experiences?
1: The main reason we started the cover crops was sugar beets. And we were having issues with the sugar beet cyst nematode. That is a different animal than what the soybean cyst nematode is. Back 20 years ago, we did not have varieties of sugar beets that could resist the sugar beet cyst nematode. You couldn't put a fungicide. There was nothing you could really do. Other than radish, oilseed radish, has an allelopathic effect that would help reduce the cyst nematodes for sugar beets. So that's how we really got started with the cover crops, was using the oilseed radish to help reduce our cyst nematodes. And at the same time, we realized it wasn't just that that it was doing to the soil. It was also helping to break up our compaction from the sugar beets. From there, we realized also we started over time, you find out that the oilseed radish acts like a, like a fertilizer sink. If there's excess nutrients in the soil, it'll utilize them. And then decay, and when it warms up in the spring the following year, you get the right temperatures, and then all those fun, happy things happen, and the nutrients are released again. So it's not allowing those nitrates to get into our groundwater, because we're only 10 miles from the Saginaw Bay, Lake Huron, and we have a very shallow water table here. So that's a big concern for a lot of folks. So that's really how we started with the oilseed radish. The only problem was, how do you kill it? I mean, most of the times it will freeze out, which was great, but there were some years they would overwinter, or it was too dry. Maybe when we plant it, the seed wouldn't germinate till the following spring. So now you're planting sugar beets, and again, here you are back in a time when we only had a few herbicides to use on sugar beets, and none of those would kill radish. So now you got all these volunteer radishes in the field, and when you're trying to harvest beets, you're getting radishes going up the elevator chain instead of sugar beets. But it it really didn't pose a huge problem, at least. And then I think it was shortly after year 2000, I don't know when it was, maybe five or six, maybe it was a little after that, we ended up having Roundup-ready sugar beets, so we could use Roundup, so then whatever radishes overwintered was a non-issue at that point. So that opened up another door for us once we had Roundup-ready sugar beets. We decided to start using rye as a cover crop after the sugar beets to try and help eliminate some of our wind erosion and also to try to get some of them rye roots down to break up the compaction and also to try to get some green organic matter back into the soil because with sugar beets, you remove everything. There's nothing left when you're done. And when it's wet and muddy, it looks like a cement field that you took a steamroller to by the time you're done. So obviously, you know, the water's going to pond. The crop the following year doesn't grow very well because the roots struggle to get to the nutrients. They struggle to get water, and the water ponds on that field when it does rain or it runs off. So the rye and the radish and just with the sugar beets alone started helping to improve our soils. So then we started taking it a step farther. So, every time we had a wheat stubble field, we would plant radishes. But then we started adding Austrian winter peas, thinking that the nitrogen nodules that the winter peas were fixing would maybe contribute some nitrogen to the radishes. So, we didn't have to add any more nitrogen to the soil to try and get them radishes to grow. And that seemed to work quite well. And I know we're still using peas to this day. They winter kill for the most part. Sometimes we get them where they overwinter and they'll get two to three feet tall in the spring, just loaded with nitrogen nodules. It really grows a great corn crop the year after the radish and the peas together. It's just sometimes with tillage practices, you want to make sure you have a high speed disc or something of that nature to cut those peas up. Because if you got any kind of shanks, they just love to wrap and you spend all day unwrapping shanks with peas some days. And that was the one thing here we're very fortunate, you know, when we started with the cover crops, We always had a few different tillage tools that a lot of guys don't have. So we always had a tillage tool for every season, every occasion, it seemed like. So I could mess around with a lot of different types of cover crops and still be able to control it. I mean, we're growing over a thousand acres of cereal rye for cover crop the last 10 years. But you got to be on the ball to spray that stuff. I mean, like you want to pull your hair out some days. But when it's warm and muggy, that stuff can go from a foot high to waist high overnight. So there's a lot of days you don't really make plans for the weekend because you might be spraying rye. And the one thing we did find is if it's muddy, we don't like compaction. We don't like to mud it around. But if that rye is a foot tall and it's going to rain and it's hot and warm, you go out and make them three-foot ruts from one end to the other and spray it and kill it. That soil is very forgiving, even though the ruts are in there. It's way more forgiving than letting that rye head out and trying to work it down later.
2: One thing that I thought would be really helpful is you talked about seeing the difference in your soils. And I think for a lot of growers out there, kind of that description of what you're looking for in that field, in those soil differences, would be really helpful as they go on their own soil health journey and try to you know, assess the changes that they're seeing.
1: Sometimes if you've got a soil potentiometer, that helps to try and, you know, push it in before you start kind of record, you know, your compaction. But a lot of times you can just kind of do it on your own. You know, you start walking out there and you start digging with a shovel and you can see the roots all just layered and they want to go sideways. You know, we don't have that anymore. Or the old tillage practices, is like I always like to say, you know, we bought a V-ripper back in I don't know, the late, early, late 80s that was supposed to help get rid of our compaction. Well, it kind of helped initially, but it seemed like after that, the tool kept working, but the soil wasn't really changing. I think we were just moving the compaction down deeper. So that's why, you know, if you really think about it, roots from radish, roots from rye, roots from oats or spring barley or whatever person's using, the more root mass you have in the soil, the harder it is for that soil to compact. Plus it gives more air pockets for the rain to flow through rather than pond on top or pack those soil aggregates together. So that's why I always like to have a bunch of different masses of roots or even the mass up top worked into the soil. Cause it just seems like it keeps that soil so much looser and it just seems like it holds some moisture better when it dries out in the spring, like these dry spells we get. So I, don't know, I hope that answered your question to some degree.
2: Yeah, well, now I have kind of a goofy follow-up. I've chased roots in the field with a shovel, and so now I'm curious, how deep have you dug to check out your rooting depth?
1: Um, as far as I know, the rye, we've got her traced to about 42 to 44 inches down. And that rye will only be maybe knee-high, knee-high to waist-high. And from what I've been told from different agronomists, they say rye roots usually typically don't go much deeper than that. Uh, Radishes, I've seen them at three feet. I've seen them in tile lines before. If they go deeper than that, I don't know, but I've been told they do go deeper, which brings up another point. If somebody's trying cover crops with radishes, that was the one thing we tried to avoid. And we haven't really had that issue. I know folks in Northern Indiana have this issue. And we had some neighbors that had this issue a while back. They plant the radishes too early after their wheat is harvested. So it gets too much root mass and it will get in the tile lines and plug. When I first started doing radishes, we were planting them like the 1st of August. Now we're planting them the 1st of September and beyond. Because the other thing with radish, once it seeds out, flowers and puts seed on, it's done its done its thing. The roots really aren't going any deeper anyway. And these radishes, they'll do that within six weeks sometimes. And they're all, they're done. So that's why we felt we'll plant them later. Because I don't want to have to go in there with tillage and till them out to kill them. I want the winter frost to take care of them. I don't want to spend more money on my cover crop project. This way, I'll let Mother Nature
0: take care of it for me.
1: But if I plant them too early, then I got to go out there and work them out under before the roots do get too deep and then plug in tile lines.
0: And we've been talking uh, about the oilseed radish and, and the cereal rye, but also you've had some experiences with red clover as well, haven't you? We did.
1: I did originally at one time we were with the radish and the peas we threw red clover in there and the reason for that was I wanted something green all winter somewhat to help keep the soil erosion back but for what the red clover cost we didn't feel we were really getting the benefit out of it so we eliminated that and sometimes we may throw some uh, spring barley in there or maybe a a light rate, like a quarter bushel of rye with it, if we want some cover there to keep the soil from blowing in the winter. Because we do get a lot of wind here in Michigan, and we do have quite a few big open areas where it doesn't take much, and the wind's blowing the soil away. And this was about 10 years ago, I was living, not in the main farm, but a different farm that I had bought, and my house was right in the center of the square mile. I lived right in the center of the square mile. And we had soybeans there that year, and we had just chisel plowed the soybean ground and left it. And I sat there and watched that dust cloud every day, all winter long, watching my dollars go across the road to the neighbors and to who knows where. And I said, enough of this. So then we started putting rye on all our soybean ground after that. And that's helped a lot. Plus, the other thing, too, soil likes to be, if you want it covered, that sun beating on it, even though it's not producing anything in the wintertime, it's still degrading that soil. Where with the rye cover crop on top of that soil, it can eliminate that. So the soil comes out into the spring, it's a lot healthier soil that way because the soil was covered all winter. You're trying to keep it covered as much as you can.
2: So I I like your system, John, because it sounds like you haven't removed completely any of the tools in the toolbox, right? You still have access to tillage equipment, you're using cover crops. Um, you're using a great crop rotation. Would you say your primary goal is really to to get that ground covered going into winter and then managing it in the spring? Or, or am I am I missing a, a piece of your of what your primary goal is on that farm?
1: No, you've got it right. We manage it more so in the spring when it's ready to plant our row crops. It takes a lot of planning in July and August to get everything planted for the cover crop based on what's going to be grown there the following spring. That's what kind of dictates what goes there in that field. And for instance, like if we've got a lot, we do farm quite a bit of ground with no tile in it. So it gets wet really easy in the spring. If we hit the wrong spring. You might not get in there till the first of June. That's not a field to put rye on because it'll head out and you'll have to harvest it for seed. And that's happened to us before, which is fine. We needed the seed anyway, but I really don't need 300 acres of rye to harvest for seed. So for instance, like on those fields, we try to plant something that will winter kill. I mean, it might get a little late sometimes, like, you know, middle October, but we find that even radishes, in the middle of, you know, planting them the 15th of October, we can still get, you know, three, four inches of radishes. There's some benefit there. There's a little bit of cover or we might throw in some spring barley because we find that that takes 28, 29 degrees to really kill it. So if the fall isn't, you know, Winter don't set in too early. We get enough growth out of that to kind of help us get some benefit out of that as well. Flax seed is another one we're starting to look at. Last year, I really like the looks of the flax seed. That takes a lot of cold temperatures and it gets a really nice stiff dead stem. And we put that on one of our sandier fields because we were trying to get it to release the phosphorus that's locked up in that soil. But that flax seed, that plant, it really held the sand back from blowing all winter. It was stiff enough. Even though it winter killed, it stayed all winter. I like that really well.
0: One thing I'd, I'd like to know is, you know, you, you have been able to refine the system over 20 years. And people listening might be at different points of kind of like Abby said, different points of their soil health journey. What stands out as the biggest sort of tweaks you've had to make along the way? You mentioned kind of planning the, uh, the radishes later as one potential one. But what other big kind of changes or tweaks have you made along the way to, to get your system to where it is today? Hmm.
1: I'm trying to think, what did I do? Well, the one thing I guess we used to plant, like rye, for instance. There again, we used to plant it. You know, we dig those beets early September. Sometimes we plant rye. We quit doing that. We'll switch to maybe black oats or white oats or usually spring barley. I don't like planting rye until I get late September, early October. And the reason being is if I plant it the first of September, the end of August, it gets too big of a head start on me this fall. So when we go into spring, it's already ahead of me more than I want it to be. So I can't keep up with spraying to keep it killed in time before we want to plant. Or and sometimes that's the other thing. If rye is small enough, we'll just work it once in the spring. Our field cultivators are spread out enough that that residue will go through. And that's how I prefer to do it. If we can just work it once and plant and kill it later, that's what we try and do. But sometimes if the rye gets planted too early, it gets too big, we have to spray it before we work the ground in the spring. So that was one thing we did switch is just planting the rye later if we can and using other things earlier in the season so that the rye doesn't get to a point where it's going to get ahead of us come spring.
0: And if you could go back and talk to the John of 20 years ago, uh, what would surprise him most about uh, the way the way the operations uh, running today or the the impact of these cover crops?
1: Um, I think the fact that we're doing so many cover crops, because back then, you know, I was, you know, do 100 acres of rye to me was a lot back then. Now I'm doing over a thousand acres of rye. Don't bother me a bit. But we've got the tools for it, too. Back there, 20 years ago, we had a 60-foot spray boom on a tractor. We had an old clunky disc and an old field cultivator that trash didn't go through very well. And we had just a disc chisel with discs in the front and some 4-inch twisted sweeps in the back. That don't go through a lot of trash, that stuff. Where now, we've got one of them, like a till wall with discs in the front and sweeps and a beater bar and a bunch of spikes in the back. we got... Two high speed discs. Our field cultivators are stretched with rolling baskets to bust up the lumps from the root masses. We've got a triple K with a double basket if it really gets bad. I've got a 120 foot spray boom now on a self propelled sprayer. And our planters all have no till colders and we can adjust the down pressure with the airbags. We've got the Keaton seed firmers. I mean, we didn't have a lot of that stuff 20, 30 years ago. You know, all that trash, sod, balls, whatever you want to call it that we're planting into, it's a non-issue anymore. It really doesn't affect us at all. We can plant through a lot of stuff.
2: So I'm curious, John, as to, you know, you just listed off a lot of changes in equipment and in your, your timing of seeding cover crops and terminating cover crops. And you've played with, with different mixes and different parts in the rotation. What's, what's next for your operation as you move forward?
1: I don't know. That's what I keep trying to ask myself. What am I going to do next? Well, I am going to toy around, I guess, for next year. We did this 20 years ago, and we got away from it. We used to know, well, we call it a stale seed bed for sugar beets. It's kind of no-till, but it's not, because we work the ground in the fall and get it ready, but we don't spring-till it. We just drop the planter and go. And we tried some 20 years ago, and it worked okay, but it wasn't the best. But there again, we didn't have the planters we have today. And the only reason being is we're having some issues with our sugar beets and the tractor tires. The tractors are too big. The planters are too big. So you've got so much compaction behind the tractor and the planter that our rows are kind of thin stands behind the tractor and where the planter tires grow. So I'm thinking if we can get that ground where we don't work it in the spring, it'll help keep them planters and the bigger tire tractors up on top more and we won't have all these big, deep tire tracks from one end of the field to the other and maybe we can get our beets to come up better in between the rows so that's what i'm going to go back to for next year is trying to go back to a no-till stale seedbed sugar beet
0: and john as as we kind of wrap up here why, why do you think more people don't at least try i mean what do you think is is the biggest barrier to farmers at least trying cover crops
1: a lot of it is the money I mean, it's not free to put out cover crops. I mean, rye costs you 10 to 12 bucks a bushel. You got $5 invested in spreading it, they think, or six. Then they think they're going to have a $30 spray bill to get rid of it. And then they got to try and manage it with their tillage tools. I mean, there were some programs up here. They were paying guys through the government conservation programs, 50 to $60 an acre for a rye cover crop. It's just ridiculous. I mean, you shouldn't need $60 to do a rye cover crop. Half a bushel's is plenty. So now you're down to five or six. You got to spread your fertilizer anyway. Mix it with that. You don't have a spreading charge. You got to put your atrazine or whatever down for corn anyway. Put a little roundup in with it to kill the rye at that time. So you really don't have any application charge, just the roundup. I know we always laugh at some of these guys. They think they need so much money to do cover crops. You can do it for 20 bucks easy sometimes, or even less than that. But in all sense, it boils down to money. Is how much is this going do I have to spend to do these cover crops? And the next thing is, do I have the time? Do I want to take the time to do it? And that's what a lot of it is. In an age where it's hard to find help, everybody's stretched to the max now with what they're doing. They don't have a lot of room to do cover crops. Until you can put it in black and white as far as, you know, a cover crop costs X number of dollars, here's your return, I don't see a lot of guys switching. If they can get a, a 5 $10 return, then I think a lot of guys would jump on it. But to put a dollar figure on cover crops, because I know people have asked me that for years, and I guess, and I've talked to our economists at campus, and you really can't put a dollar figure on it real easy. But that's what would sell the cover crops, is if we had a dollar figure as to what we'd actually gain from doing it.
2: What I'm hearing you say, John, is that the large amount of money or, or cost share per acre for a short period of time is not going to do the job that maybe even a smaller amount of money over a longer period of time to get over that hump and see the benefits might actually be more worthwhile. And, and I wonder if that's something to take to those who are offering incentives, you know, as, as to what, what's actually needed by growers to, to make this change on farm If they want to help cost share something.
1: Yes. You hit the nail on the head there. That is what it needs. I mean, rather than paying somebody a big lump sum and, you know, let them try it for two or three years. Yeah. Pay him way less and make him do it for five or six years. That way, by the time, you know, you get out far enough, he starts to see some of that benefit in the soil and in the crops he's growing. So that way, when the money does run out, he may decide to just keep right on doing it. But you know, just to do it for a year or two or three, it, it's not really showing these farmers anything.
0: You know, thinking about an audience of other farmers that maybe they they've never tried cover crops. In some cases, maybe they've started and it has or hasn't gone well. Uh, maybe they're like you, but uh, in in general, other people who are at different points of the soil health journey, what would be your advice or what would be your message you want you'd want to share with them?
1: I would tell them, you know, you, you definitely want to do a cover crop. I mean. You've got to replenish your soil somehow, and tillage isn't going to do it. All the magic gluck these salesmen want to sell you is not going to do it. You've got to do, you know, something natural, and that's cover crops. If you go back into the 60s and into the 50s, back to the 40s, in the beginning of time, farmers have always plowed down clover, some kind of green manure. And that's what we need to do now is some sort of cover crop. Get some green manure back in. You've got to replenish them soils. You've got to keep them soils healthy and you need to keep them in one place so they're not all over the neighborhood. But at the same time, I'm going to tell somebody don't go out tomorrow and this fall and say, I'm going to plant a thousand acres of rye. You're never going to do it again. Do a hundred acres of rye. Figure out how you're going to manage that hundred before you do a thousand. If you're skeptical about the weather and you don't want to try and do rye, do something that winter kills. Do something that's easy. Radishes, peas, spring barley, black oats, white oats, flax seed, that all winter kills. And it still helps the soil benefit. And the other thing I'm going to tell a person, just because you did cover crops this year, when you plant your crop in the spring, you might you're probably not going to see much of a yield difference. It's going to take five years. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. And that's what people need to realize. I mean, I've been involved in all these government programs since the beginning of time, it seems like for cover crops or soil health or something. And I used to sit on our conservation district board, I'm sitting there looking at these farmers, they take their money and they do these programs for three years and they never do them again. Well, we didn't see no difference, it didn't help us any. Well, in three years isn't a very long time to do anything. It takes a long time to
0: build organic matter. Yes, it does. Patience and persistence, certainly a common theme among all the farmers we've talked to who are successfully improving their soil health over time. I want to thank John Burke very much for being on the show. I think we packed about as much useful information as we possibly could into that 30 minutes or so. Thank you again to John. Before we close, though, I'd like to say thank you to the Soy Checkoff for sponsoring this Farmers for Soil Health series of the Soil Sense podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Abby Wick, Dr. Olivia Cayouette, and myself with support from the United Soybean Board, the University of Missouri Center for Regenerative Agriculture, and the Soil Health Institute. If you're at all interested in what soil health looks like in practice and on the farm, I highly suggest you subscribe and follow this show on your favorite podcast app for more stories like what John just shared with us, and leave us a rating and review while you're there. You might also want to check out the Farmers for Soil Health website at farmersforsoilhealth.com. We'll leave it all in the show notes. Until next time, stay curious, keep collaborating and don't forget to take a minute to stop and smell the soil. Have a good one.